So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day, hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. Welcome back to Drinking the Movies. How's quarantine going for you? Oh, it's going smoothly. Taking my daily walks outside, visiting some neighborhood parks I never knew existed, finding some new walking paths, um, basically looking for any reason to go for a walk. How about you? Pretty much doing the same. Making it work. This is when I'm glad that we enjoy movies and not something that involves more socializing. Yes, yeah, this is the most socializing we'll have done, probably, for some time. So, yeah, we, in a upbeat manner of thinking, have covered Preston Sturgis this week, and it was an absolute delight on my part. I saw a bunch of influence on the Coen brothers in one film in particular, which was definitely your favorite film, I understand, Sullivan's Travels. We'll get into it. Yes, the lighter fare was... Uh, more necessary than I realized during the COVID crisis. Yes, your little C-19 pick me up. Mm-hmm. Um, but as always, we found a way to somehow give you guys first impressions of movies that may or may not be coming out, but at least we found the trailers. Um, and we'll be covering Undine and Baby Teeth. But first, Undine with this delicious Bodhisattva. <laughs> All right, Michael, that was the trailer for Undine from Christian Petzold, starring Franz Rogowski, one of your favorite modern um, combos in cinema. What do you think? I'm very excited for this movie as... Listeners may remember Transit was on my top 10 list of last year. Uh, psyched to see the same actors returning, Franz Rogowski and Paula Beer. Paula Beer only had so much to do in that movie. I'm kind of intrigued to see her take more of a lead role here. Mm-hmm. Um, looks like he's kind of playing in a different genre this time around. Perhaps some fantasy elements at play. I'm very intrigued to see how he uh, handles that. Looks pretty cool to me. What about you? Before I do that, forgive me if I'm wrong, but wasn't Franz one of your favorite actors? I honestly don't remember who I ultimately went with. He was my pick for best actor, I think, at our halfway point. That's right. Um, Okay. Maybe you ended up going with someone else. I think I went with Almodovar. Oh, uh, yes. For Pain and Glory, ultimately. Yes. Antonio uh, Banderas. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But you're just calling him Almodovar because he was so convincing as being on the oh, Ben Terrence was exactly. it was that good <laughs> yes yes um so yeah I, I would pick up on what you were saying mm-hmm. with the fantasy elements and, and say that I think that he's playing even deeper in magical realism here um yeah. in transit he definitely has a layer of that going on because we have what appears to be Nazi Germany invading but it, it's kind of presented as this fantastical presence that's slowly smothering and not depicted um 
viscerally, we'll say. Um, and here, there's definitely some transition between scale that mm-hmm. I was witnessing in the trailer. Um, I'm sure you saw the same fish tank I did. And then when they crashed to the ground in the pile of water, that's a lot more water than that fish tank would have had mm-hmm. to knock them over. Um, so there's definitely some magical realism at work. I'm very intrigued to see um, this continuing combination of actors with this fantastic director. And I very much hope that it will be available in some way for us to see this year. Yeah, if I remember correctly, it's fairly short. I think it's under 90 minutes. Um, always kind of nice to have he's, something he's that is nice and tight. And quick, though. Like, when I think of transit, it didn't... It could have been shorter in, in some ways. Mm. You know, he he's... I think he's got a great eye for length versus edit. Mm. On to Baby Teeth. Baby Teeth. I'll do anything. Can he please stay? Mila, he threatened me with a meatball. He threatened my wife with a meatball? I don't want to hurt you. So don't. Moses! Mila should have the world at her feet right now. I have no idea what you're feeling. I can't feel anything because I can't breathe because you take up all the air. I think something in you has changed. When I met you, it was like you weren't scared of anything. I don't think the world would be this big or weird if we become obsessed with functionality. She's going to be okay. Oh, that'll do it. This is the worst possible parenting I can imagine. All right, we just watched the trailer for Shannon Murphy's Baby Teeth. What are your thoughts? I'm quite excited. I really like this genre. It reminds me, I believe, of a film called Tramps. Um, that came out on Netflix about two youngsters in love and up to no good, essentially, um, pulling a job. Um, and American Honey, which is also about two youngsters essentially pulling a job. Um, obviously, Sheila Booth's um, haircut in American Honey has a little bit in common here with Moses. Um, but I just I expect to pleasantly enjoy my time with this film. It likely won't be in my top 10 or 20, but it'll be a solid contender for movies that I just want to spend time with, probably, and continue to bring up as years go by. How about you? I'm excited as well. Uh, Yeah, this kind of movie, the kind of coming of age teen drama, you know, young girl um, dealing with boyfriends and parents and all that um, can sometimes feel like almost just... uh, too well tread in the indie realm but i think this kind of has personality it looks like it like it has a distinctive voice mm-hmm. to it um both in just kind of the look and the feel um and uh i'm intrigued by uh eliza scanlon in this role this seems like a uh change of pace i guess relative to the, the little i've seen her in being those being little women and uh sharp objects mm-hmm. um i think it looks promising I think a combination of her with Ben tells me that there's something to that screenplay that's going to be interesting. Yeah, I believe it's a debut feature. Um, Oh, fantastic. Promising newcomer, perhaps. Awesome. 
Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. We recently joined as members, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. Let's get to Preston Sturgis. The screenplay master himself. Hello. Hello. Are we alone? I, I mean, can you talk? Good. Well, you just made $18,000. What do you mean, $18,000? That's right. Two times nine. Call me at once if you get any more news. Goodbye. Oh, wait, wait, wait. wait. What, what, what did you say? What? Rude, what are you... $18,000. Oh, no, no. Uh, this one is $200,000. That's $200,000. I'm going to buy a dog. You know, one of those great big woolly ones, Johnny, with the bangs all over its Mary, Mary, Mary. I, I know, Lef, please, but I don't care. I've wanted one all my life. Oh, snap out of it, please. Johnny, Johnny, we've just made $18,000. $9,000 for you and $9,000. We'll be starting with easy living here, Michael. Tell me, did it appear to be easy living when she was stuck in the middle of the bed with phone cords wrapped around her and people just ringing off the hook and banging on the door, just trying to give her free cars and free stocks and free jewelry and free coats and poor girl. Yeah. Tough, tough life. Truly. Yeah, uh, I had a great time with this one. Uh, this is from 1937. It's the one of our three Sturgis written movies today, not directed by Preston Sturgis. Correct. This is directed by Mitchell Lyson. Um, my understanding is that Sturgis famously did not care for how his material was directed by others, hence his movement from writer to writer director. Um, but I got to say, I had a great time with this. Um, I did have a great time. There are definitely moments, though, where I go, I think Preston could have directed that mm. like more interestingly, mm. um, particularly some of the chase scenes, which honestly, I love the moments of where Louis is hanging out the window saying whatever the hell he's saying oh, yeah. when um, when the banker's son hops on and, and then um, the assistant um, is standing through the sunroof. You know, there's, oh, there's yeah. just so many comedic moments, but the the chase scenes that we see in the lady eve and in um sullivan's travels just are so much more memorable to me mm, and I, yeah. I was a little bit disappointed at the lack of trains in this one fair enough um maybe just to summarize a bit just to put things in context um so this one is uh about a banker uh jb ball played by edward arnold uh who at the beginning of the film is uh, fed up with his wife's uh, extravagant spending uh-huh. and throws her newly purchased sable coat off the roof of their penthouse where it lands on Jean Arthur's Mary Smith, a young single working girl who thereafter is mistaken as his mistress by various folks. And Mary um, Smith becomes an innuendo. It does. As does the Hotel Louis. It does indeed. Um one of those people who mistake her as his mistress is Mr. Louis Louis, the proprietor of the Hotel Louis. Am I supposed to say, oh, no? 
oh dear oh no what's what kind of hijinks are coming uh and he surmises that he can avoid foreclosure on his hotel he's in debt to the banker mr ball by putting gene arthur's character up in one of his ritzy rooms um the most ritzy room. oh it's a ritzy room it's a great room i would be just fine in there i would as well uh yeah, I thought th- this is my favorite of the three Sturgis movies we watched. I think we're going to have different ordering of our Sturgis I think films. we do. I think it, I think we both have the same middle title, which is interesting. Yeah, that is right, I think. Um, but yeah, for me, this was the nicest balance of slapstick with the smart dialogue and wordplay. Um, super funny, super sweet. I think the performances are great. Um the automated yeah. diner scene is one of the great comedy scenes of the 30s. I'm yeah. fairly confident in saying, as someone who's seen maybe five films from the 30s, I'm a definite expert to make that claim. Yeah, and that is exactly the kind of thing that, uh, had I just heard in advance that that was going to be in this, I would have thought would maybe just be too broad for me, mm-hmm. but is really kind of just great chaos in the moment. It's great time. And it's so well developed within the screenplay, like the reason why she's there, the reason why he's there as a as a development in the story, it's so well earned that mm-hmm. it's just Preston Sturgis's comedic screenplays are, I think, one of my favorite genres of screenplay. we'll say in historical cinema yeah that scene it's partly just like the extremity of it like uh the romantic character the romantic counterpart to gene arthur's character is getting in a fight right behind Mm -hmm. the behind the scenes in this restaurant and they're in like a big fight Uh over a very small matter yes i was like wow you guys need to cool it (laughs) this place just blew up it was awesome and then um she asks him um, at some point in the hotel, uh, what's Steel going to do? And he remarks on the weather and says Steel's going to go down. And that ends up earning her $9,000, to which she exclaims, technically 18, but she's splitting it with him. Um, I'm going to go buy a dog. And that was just the best. <laughs> Great. I fully condone that purchase. It, like the, the way that it develops her character is she's getting all these other things, but all she wants is a dog. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the first thing she wants to spend her money on. She, she's, um, a lot of his female characters aren't that type of individual. At least it seems mm. to me in, um, Veronica Lake in Sullivan's Travels and with, um, Barbara Stanwyck, um, when we get to the Lady Eve, they're a lot more, um, forward thinking and, um, I, I guess I would say intent and, and have their own agendas and mm-hmm. hers is a little bit more easy come easy go which was a nice uh switch up here when we were watching these yeah yeah uh it seems like one of the tropes he enjoys sturgis enjoys playing with is you know faked or misunderstood identity yes and in the lady eve and sullivan's travels it's you know characters putting on a costume or a disguise whereas gene arthur's character here is put the in one. a fur yes exactly she just falls into these circumstances um and that's part of the joy to me like she's just kind of beautifully frazzled as all of this is being showered on her and that's just irresistible um, and she's just so good. She's just so sweet and, but, you know, confident at the same time. Smooth. Um, 
Very smooth. Very when smooth. she when she's explaining that he's just an idiot because she has a schoolgirl's high school education and yeah, uh, it's just twelve percent. <laughs> yeah, I think that yeah, that's one of my favorite scenes just because of the timing of that. That's when just after Mary Smith and JB Ball have met, they get in his car and he's explaining compound interest to her. Mm-hmm. He is correct in describing it yes but she gets the upper hand in the scene just by remaining cool and he of course gets totally worked up and it's hilarious and you keep kind of thinking the conversation is ending right at one point he says okay forget it but he can't help it he comes up with another example you cut they get out of the car he's still going on about Uh it she still won't give in to him the film ends with it or is near ending and he's trying to write a letter to explain to her how compound interest works yeah yeah um which for me is kind of a nice example of how these movies kind of poke fun at the rich without being too bitter or cynical like they remain very light in 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 doing those things that would appeal to you know the less well off and and there are some moments that do you know make them look a little bit more evil i particularly think of the upshot of the um the skyscrapers um Mm. which is a very dark looming shot in context to the entire rest of the film for me yeah and i will say that there's moments when they depict that diner the automated diner where Mm. it appears to be like almost a disgusting capitalist machine or something like that oh yeah yeah. there's there's just some ways that they frame it when it's completely open um when all the doors come open and it's shooting everything out that it just kind of looks gross Mm. like a piece of machinery yeah yeah um so i I do think that there's interesting flourishes from this director to you know address what was going on at the time which was we were in the middle of the great depression uh the european war was being rumbled about and had not completely begun um and when we get to the latter films that we'll talk about, both of which came out in the year 1941, um, that is the year that we joined World War II after the bombing of Pearl Harbor in December. So knowing where we're at in these films really does interest me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to me that like his career kind of ended when it did. Um, you know, like when I think about going into World War II, I think more about the, uh, like the darker side of film. Like I think about film noir, you know, mm-hmm. and it's interesting that, screwball like kind of peaked in the 30s with depression era comedies like this um where as i'm sure you know as we went into world war ii i'm sure people could have used more sturges had he stuck around i i think so yeah it's it's very odd what was his last film uh i'm not sure what it was but i know that um he was more or less um his career was more or less finished in the early 40s 41 42 that's very disappointing yeah, I know. I know. There is plenty more for us to cover in this because I think it's kind of like late 40s or early late 30s to early 40s that his career lasted. Um, but there is more for us to do. No doubt. There is. Um, did you have a favorite shot in Easy Living? I think my favorite scene would probably be when we see Jean Arthur's character in her own apartment. Um, where there's like hard, I don't think there's any dialogue in that scene. And we see her looking at her, um, a note from her landlord about paying rent. And she's, you know, looking through drawers, looking for any money she might have lined around. She contemplates breaking into her piggy bank, her savings, mm-hmm. um, and ultimately decides not to. I think that really just underlines how much, or that makes it all the more enjoyable to see her then 
enjoy all these luxuries of the rich later on. Yeah, I think it makes her identifiable to what would have been the common man in the Depression era when this was released. She also has a moment that's extremely human where she looks out the window and smells a pie being cooked by her neighbor. Mm, Yeah, Um, yeah. And that that was a moment that still lingers with me um, Mm -hmm. currently. Um, For me, I think my favorite scene is very boring and you know it's more about the comedic timing than anything but it's when she wakes up to the phone ringing she answers the wrong phone the other phone hangs up it rings again she answers the same phone and then puts it down after two rings answers the other and just Mm -hmm. the coordination of doing that and then getting the phone cord wrapped around her it's pretty consistently um Maybe it was just perfectly edited, but it seemed like it was very little shots. Mm-hmm. So just the the ability for her to stay in the scene, continue to sell the comedy, do the choreography that's required to entangle the phone cords seamlessly, get herself under the covers. Um, it was just all so delicious. I, I love that moment. 100%. That's where that beautiful frazzle really stood out to me and uh, very much reminded me of the His Girl Friday Potent scenes. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. On uh, the note of Gene Arthur, I saw that I think just yesterday, uh, the film comment podcast did a whole episode on Gene Arthur. Mm. Um, and I think there's an article on their website about her and specifically her voice um, and how she does the, have a great voice. the director really responded to her voice. So I have not read that yet or listened to the podcast yet, but it's out a there. plug for it. Seek yeah. for it. Yeah. There we are. Um, on to the Lady Eve. Lady Eve. Here's the gorgeous, tantalizing Lady Eve. Now, watch her go into action. She has her eye on this handsome, wealthy, but terribly naive and inexperienced young man. That's the same dame. She looks the same, she walks the same, and she's tossing you just like she's done the last time. She doesn't talk the same. Anybody can put on an act. Do speak a preacher, you're gonna flew to the shifting. Guess who I am. Do you know that I find your son very handsome? That's the same dame. I can tell by the I'll way. I'll take she... over from here, Mr. Murgatroyd. You and who else? I said I'll take over from here, here, Ambrose. Ambrose? I Ambrose Peter Fonda's dad and the sultry Barbara Stanwyck, a film noir icon. Very nice pair. I understand you enjoy this one as well. Surprise, surprise. I adore all of these films. <laughs> this film, I like, I, I think it's in the middle. I don't know. Easy mm. Living's come up for me um, as as I let it sit and just be that fun comedy that has cartoons in it. That's another thing that I really like about him is the inclusion of cartoons. Um, so we'll, mm. we'll see. I, I, just feel comfortable saying I love Preston Sturgis and Sullivan's Travels is my favorite of his because there's the most going on. But let's get into Lady Eve and drop an apple on these fools' heads. Fair enough. I like that. We don't need to split hairs between the three. Um, yeah, I thought it was great. Um, uh, Barbara Stanwyck, yeah, is, is essentially playing a femme fatale type to me, mm-hmm. which I think is super Undoubtedly. fun. Yeah. Um, very noir, very sultry, very um, much in control of what's happening. She absolutely deserves to be the title character. Yeah. Uh, and then we get to kind of 
participate in this scheming is a lot of fun, particularly in the first half, but the second half as well. Um, whether it's the scene we watched just before the show to uh, bring this back to memory where she's using her makeup mirror to spy on mm-hmm. Henry Fonda's before uh, she character. Exactly. It makes him at fault and it's just yeah so smooth. Yeah. Um, and I thought he was great. Um, you know, he's very believably dim, but not, you know, too dopey, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this could have, you know, slipped into, um, I don't know, too much silliness if he played it even more, um, goofy, you know, I, I thought he was just perfect. I would agree. There's a certain naivety that he um sells perfectly much as mary smith sold her naivety perfectly um it's earned you know they each have their own interests she's clearly uh in easy living she was clearly very good at the things that she knew he's clearly very knowledgeable about the few things that he knows Mm -hmm. but what he doesn't know is basically anything about the people that want to get one over on him which mm-hmm. makes it really exciting to watch him be completely unaware of what's happening when he ends up winning the card game. Mm-hmm. Great scenes. Those those card game scenes are pretty fun. Yes. Very slick. Do uh, you want to summarize the story a bit? Yeah. Just to put things in context? Um, so he departs, I believe, the Amazon? I think that's right. Um, with a snake for study, and he hops on a dinghy that is going to meet up with a fairy ship. When he boards, everybody essentially knows exactly who he is, that he's one of the richest men in the world. And the Lady Eve drops a apple on his head um, in a fitting bit of um, wisdom. You know, you can view that as uh, showing him gravity or you can view it as showing him knowledge in the biblical sense. Um, there's, There's many interpretations throughout this film. He gets on board. Women try to woo him, he gets tripped by her, falls in love with her, and he also falls over her when he trips. Um, then he finds out who she is, then she double-crosses him and plays someone else who breaks his heart, and then he comes back to the girl that she really is. And it is a uh, joyous, sparkling ride um, that I just, I will rewatch this film, I'll put it that way. This is a Logan Lucky style movie for me. I'm just going to rewatch it. Highly rewatchable. I would agree. Um, Kind of a film of two halves. Um, Mm. I don't think I have a preference of one to the other. They're just different. There is uh, the half aboard the ship and then the half spent in uh, like the Northeast and maybe Connecticut or upstate New York. I think I like the second half in some ways more because Mm. it focuses more on her um, agency and her agenda and lets her do more but um the part that made me feel the happiest was the first part when he fell in love and when they were Mm -hmm. falling in love together but then that moment where he loses trust for her was the problem yeah uh yeah in the first half i think there is that nice uh balance between the just the comedy and romance often in like a single shot or scene um and it's all sold by barbara stanwyck just giving him, um, not cord. it's not to the level of gaslighting, but just riling him up on purpose. Very much so. He is very quickly, or as the trailer in her said, hands, bothered. 
Yes. Very bothered. Um, yeah, uh, it, it, it is romantic and, and, and sexually charged quite often, but, um, never, you're often unseemly. kind of amused. Yeah. 100%. Um, what was I about to say? Oh, in the, the second half is, I guess, where I felt maybe even more of those jabs at the upper class in a scene like where Henry Fonda's character's father comes out onto his patio to have lunch or brunch or whatever, and there's no food under his silver plates, and he starts oh, banging his you know trays I together. I love that scene where he's smashing the table. And then smashing the trays, and yes. then smashing the table, and smashing the... Oh, that's Hilarious. Uh, but yeah, it is, you know, what a five-year-old would do when they don't mm-hmm. get what they want. Just exactly the kind of thing that is a, a jab, but is not, like, particularly cynical about class. It is just, it's just, it's just laughing at it. And it builds um, perfectly on the character we're introduced to, which is, you know, the idea that beer is totally different than ale. It's... It's fermented on the top or the bottom. I forget which. <laughs> that was pretty good. You know, because that's like who we know the father to be, the guy that corrects that. And yeah, then seeing yeah. him and his uh, apishness was, yeah. was quite pleasant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The kind of thing that, yeah, anyone who drinks beer is just like, just drink it. It's beer. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> pretty funny. And we're professionals at that. Yeah. Take our word on it. Yeah. Um, I think it's what you'd call a comedy of remarriage. You know, these stories in which the couple um, maybe comes together, has a breakup, the hijinks ensue that then kind of leads them back together in the end. Wait, um, they were the same people? What? <laughs> <laughs> which, like, that is, you know, I would wonder how many people not like us, modern audiences, I shouldn't say not like us, how many people would just not buy the ending, right? Is it just, is it... Um, would people just think it's too silly that he doesn't recognize it? I think it's No, I think great. anybody that goes on the emotional ride doesn't care about that question. I, they just care about so. the come to Jesus moment, if you will, where it's like, I don't care what's true. I know that I love you. Yeah. I was an idiot. Yeah, I would hope so. Yeah. I thought it was terrific. Um, Gotta talk about the horse scene, right? Oh, Yes. That's oh yeah, that's my favorite. That Gotta is be yours, majestic. right? Yes, I yes. I do address it in my letterbox review. Um, it is one of the most charged um, scenes I think in the film. There's a lot of truth happening. There's a lot of honesty. There's a lot of sweetness. There's a lot of romance, and there's also a funny horse rubbing his head right on both of them as they're falling in love. It is great. I would just like love to know the history of like the making of that scene. Um, but yeah, he is completely sincere. It is funny. And she's also narrating at the same time. Like I almost kind of forgot that like that scene began with her talking about how she knew exactly how this is going to play out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that all just is is tied together quite nicely in one scene. Yeah. Uh, very funny. Oh, now I'm remembering. The way that I would describe this film is two words, seductive comedy. Because mm. it, it, it's constantly luring you. Even when you're laughing, it's pulling you in further. Even when it's sad, it's pulling you in further. It, you know, there's joy and there's sorrow, but all of 
all of that's seductive and it keeps bringing you further and further into Barbara Stanwyck. Mm-hmm. And then she just keeps delivering the goods over and over and over. And the goods are very good because Preston was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about why these feel a little different from the Hawks screwball comedies. Not in a way that one is better than the other, just different. It's that, to me, they... One is better than the other. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I'm going to let that slide. <laughs> Table that argument for another another beer. Yeah. Uh, the the Sturgis pairs, the, the gender dynamics, and that seem to usually give the upper hand to the women. Mm-hmm. Um, like, this is uh, Barbara Stanwyck's, you know, she, she is uh, the puppet master to this yes. entire story, and that is great. No qualms about that. Versus Hawks, where it's almost more of a match of equals, whether it's um, Rosalind Russell and Cary Grant in His Girl Friday, or something that's not screwball, but just similarly interested in sort of relationships, like um, To Have and Have Not, mm-hmm. where Bacall and Boki are very much um, playing each other, in a way, yes. you know? Um, so... It's just different stuff for different days, but it's funny how they, they, they kind of, you know, tip the scales in different ways, I guess. But the difference is that Preston Sturgis is for every day. Oh, every single day of the week? Every day. Can't get tired of it? Nope. Not possible. <laughs> Pretty good stuff. Um, Favorite scene? I really do like the horse scene, but the card games are very slick. Um, we haven't even talked about the ending. Um, let's talk about the ending I just use that as an excuse to talk about the ending but it's great when he uh, they're all, they're aboard a train she's finally sorry what are they on? a train that's right you like this train stuff Sturgis huh? and trains they're great scenes yeah because that's the one thing that we didn't really know about her plan right um, about where how she's ultimately going to get this marriage uh, how she's going to lead to a divorce and get some money out of this thing. And she starts talking about all the different men she's slept with. Um, funny stuff. Nicely edited. Well, she doesn't talk about all the different men she's slept with. She talks about all the different men she's known. It's a very Correct. careful distinction in it's 1941. True. Much like what it means for a man to give a girl a fur coat. and easy living. There's a lot of innuendo that is truly hilarious and that i had to really key in on watching these films in order to understand where the comedy was it took me about the third fur coat for me to go wait a minute that's probably like a thing and yeah of course it's a thing it's a very expensive item that means that you're someone's mistress or wife um at the time so it it was a derogatory term we'll say and there's a lot of innuendo charged there as there is with saying um, different men you've known. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'll go with the ending. How about you? Favorite scene? Hmm. Uno momento, por favor. That's a good problem to have. I believe that she is getting dressed in... As she's becoming the um, the fictional character for the first time before the party. And there's this extremely memorable scene of her just talking to her fake uncle. And sitting there in the room. Um, not sitting, sorry. Standing in the room. Looking at herself. Going over herself. Developing mm-hmm. the character. Figuring out what the voice is going to be. 
Um, and then her saying, I don't think this is going to work. And then him doing a Hitler impression. Yeah. Um, it's extremely funny. And it's also very historically interesting to me because Hitler wasn't Hitler the way that he is now to us then. So just just seeing that development, because I believe this film was shot before Sullivan's Travel. So it was shot in the late 40s and early 40, or sorry, late 1940 and early 1941. Um, so historically, it's an interesting scene. Talent-wise, it's interesting. Lighting, gorgeous. Mirror work, excellent. There's just so much going for it. I think that's my favorite. Love it. On to Sullivan's Travels. Let's do it. The best of Preston. But to find out how it feels to be in trouble. Without friends, without credit, without checkbook, without name. Alone. And I'll go with you. How could I be alone if you're with me? Sullivan's Travel. The side-splitting story of a $4,000 a week big shot who turns hobo for experience and gets more than he bargained for. You better drop me at the next corner and take this bus back where you stole it from. Don't talk nonsense. I left a note saying I was taking the car. Or did I? Be nice if you could remember. That was a good cheers. <sighs> Almost as good as this movie. Your favorite of the bunch. Mm-hmm. I thought, In case they I thought you meant to say our favorite, Michael. <laughs> to say anything is my least favorite on an episode about Preston Sturgis is that just sounds wrong. I don't like that at all. Did you how how did you feel about the introduction of this film in which we are watching a chase scene on a train um, that is also a fight scene um, with some excellent train choreography and masterful editing when I think about when this was made um i actually did a lot of consideration about buster keaton films and mm. how talented he was to shoot the trains the way that he did mm. you, you know because that was about 10 years minimum before this film um yeah. but maximum i think it was 20 years before this film i think we saw yeah. some buster keaton train on a on a train movies um 20 years mm. before this film was made and I honestly think that he did a better job with some of his train choreography, but he also didn't do the um, going inside of the train cars mm-hmm. horizontal, um, in which I'm sure you also noticed that they were level to the ground, if you look at the way that the hair hangs. But what an introduction. And it starts with yeah. the end and then gets into a debate. What did you think about that? Oh, great opening. Pulls you in immediately. Yeah. Some, yeah. Uh, very well put together. Uh no qualms about the beginning, for sure. It wasn't a little bit too hail Caesar-y for you. Uh, that didn't come to mind right off right off the bat. I mean, the Coens come to mind, yeah, as soon as you know we start talking about "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?" for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it was as soon as they got into a debate over ethics. Ah, uh, yes. shortly after the film yes. ends, um, or rather, the film begins. Correct him and a couple studio heads. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he wants to make a Vittorio De Sica film, and they want him to make more comedies. Yes, and to me, that was very much a serious man um, and Hail Caesar kind of mixed together, stirred up. And, and then the fact that it's O Brother, Where Art Thou obviously has its own implication on mm-hmm. influence to the Coens. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, this is one that like I'd love to know. I'd love to just see if there's 
info out there about Sturgis's own thoughts on it. And if this was, you know, a, a reflection on his own um, career in comedy. I think um, you have to see it that way, don't you? That's, that's the, the only way, the way I, I can. It. I just, you know, never like to assume. Yeah. Well, I don't know. How do you not? I, I think it's pretty yeah. safe to assume because it, it, it does come off more than any other film is autobiographical because it's called Sullivan's Travels. It's about a film director interacting with film heads that disagree with the type of film that he wants to make. And then he ends up making both the type of film that he sought out to make in the character in the beginning and also make what the character at the end finds out, which is a comedy that brings everyone together. I think it, I think mm-hmm. it does everything um, that would make the people in the church happy at the end mm-hmm. and that would make the idealist who wants to make something ideal in the beginning. For mm-hmm. me, it, it really straddled that line and, and is I, it's just massively impressive to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, so if you assume that like this is sort of autobiographical, at least in spirit, you know, not in uh, plot, obviously. Um, it's just interesting to me because I think he definitely got um, in the car with a thirteen-year-old boy. I, I, the chain gang thing, totally true, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, it just is is kind of su- maybe not surprising, but just interesting that like he was so he was so successful. He was like one of the most famous people in Hollywood, and yet that suggests that he was maybe having doubts about the value of his own work, um, and that this was sort of a wrestling with you know the value of us of escapism and and um uh yeah i don't know that just strikes me as interesting as what kind of you know personal um stuff he was maybe working through by doing this um in really in relation to his own work yeah and, and in relation to the timing and the country and everything right because this is another depression era comedy we haven't joined world war ii so our our market hasn't completely boomed we've been selling for what three years to people that have been preparing or in the war so our, our country's money is ramping up and there's private businesses which we do see along the way but it's not rounded out there's still poor people that we're introduced to there's actresses that don't quite make it which we're introduced to via veronica lake and i think that it's i think it's very much a film about a man reconciling with his own place in what he knows the world to be, which is America, and then mm-hmm. his own place within what he does for a career. Yeah, yeah. And even though it is a very specific thing he's wrestling with, whether to, you know, uh, steer himself towards realism versus comedy and filmmaking, it's kind, it's kind of universal in just, mm-hmm. you know, the feeling of, does what you're doing make any difference in the world? Um, that is highly relatable, and I very much can respond to that. And we see what happens when what he's doing that makes a difference has consequences. And mm-hmm. he gets hit in the head and falls onto a train car after being dragged and ends up uh, deliriously hitting a man with a rock after he's been pronounced dead in Hollywood and ends up in a chain gang. <laughs> immersive film research gone bad <laughs> yeah it's it ends up getting to be a little oh brother where art thou ye mm-hmm. but it also um you know there's something dickinsonian about it i guess mm-hmm. meaning charles yeah. dickens there's a lot of classism that is addressed um and how he just can't get out of his own money's shadow 
we'll say, or the people that have interest in his ability to make them interest. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, I could just watch this film and, and have, I think, philosophical debates about this film more than mm. most other films that I've seen from the 40s. Mm. Yeah. Other than, let's say, Fantasia. Mm, which yeah. just never stops. <laughs> Haven't seen that one in a long time. Due for a revisit. Uh, you heard it here first. Fantasia 2020. It's coming, coming up. <laughs> what else are we going to watch? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, back to that trope of, of faked or misunderstood identity. To me, this is kind of the coolest use of it because in Easy Living, Gene Arthur is mistaken as a mistress and then in lady eve barbara stanwick is uh playing these different characters here he kind of goes from playing a character to then having to prove he is not that character uh there's a nice uh, kind of reversal of intent yes Um, after his souls are taken yes yes exactly um you know just just put all together these characters putting on and pulling off these different faces is, is kind of fun um uh good stuff what was it about this film that you didn't like as much as you liked the other preston sturges films um i think these late these reasons will sound a little boring i didn't find this quite as funny as something like easy living um i would go with you there yeah i mean even when they fall onto the haystack it's not that funny when he gets sick, it's not that funny. It's more played for melodrama, but also has a comedic element mm-hmm. instead of being played for a comedic element that accidentally brings melodrama. Yeah. So maybe expectations. I was maybe hoping for something a little more amusing, um, you know, something like that opening chase scene where the our protagonist jumps on the on a kid's advanced go-kart a very impressive go-kart oh dude uh, i thought that was a military jeep. i don't know what that was but that kid put together a hell of a car yes he did <laughs> um, say how old are you 13 <laughs> take yeah. it easy mister um yeah like you know that's kind of the first big set piece if you will um for whatever reason i just I, I don't know i didn't get quite as much of a kick out of that as something like the cafeteria scene in easy living um Sure. Even though they're kind of a similar alert of, of a similar vibe. Um, How much joy did you get from the church? The church scene is lovely, no doubt. Um, and and very, very heartfelt and sincere. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, to I, to I me, this film is a little bit about equality. Um, I think that Sturgis seems to be very preoccupied with classism and found ways to depict it in film without letting the production studio get in the way of what he had to say. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that the introduction where um, the only person of color in the cast is serving everybody else on the land yacht and being played for extreme comedy to the ending in which they're treating all of these white prisoners in this um, black church kindly. I I really thought that there was a lot of depth there to Preston's um, views on society. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I might, might just need to sit with it more. It's maybe just um, about the, the simplicity of it a little bit. Um, I don't know that it ever, it ever felt quite 
revelatory for me. Like, I completely, like, agree and, and respond to all of its sentiments, but I just don't know that there was any moment of real, like, epiphany, because I feel like... Um, you live in you, the world 80 years later, and you get to take those epiphanies, um, you know, lying down. <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. Um, I think we do. I, I think we definitely do, compared to when that was. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm also, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of interested in to think about who this is for, in a way, um, and um, whether or not this would be, whether or not this would appease, like, the, the guilt of the better off, or, and whether or not people like those people we see in the church at the end would really respond to to this kind of movie. I don't know. I, I don't know that I have a complaint there. I, I think I'm just still kind of thinking about that. I'm always really, really conscious of like, how do you 100% avoid condescension in any of this kind of thing? I would not call this condescending. I just haven't really quite figured out like if, if this is a universal kind of movie um, in its, in its message, because it's about how, you know, certain people need, Laughter. I don't know. I I take that back already. But as you can see, still processing. I suppose. Yeah, I. That's an interesting point. That is the factual claim that certain people need laughter. Um, and as someone who grew up with folks that do prefer that type of content, I will say that there are certain people that just aren't going to watch film the way that you and I are. Mm -hmm. that do need the type of comedy that's being presented. It doesn't need to be mm. Pluto being rolled up into a drape. Correct. But it does need to be something mindless. Um, in some capacity, it doesn't have to be mm -hmm. empty of thoughtfulness, but the thoughtfulness can't be more precious than the joy it brings, I'll say. Mm -hmm. Because I um, I have family members that they they like watching a movie when it makes them feel good or they have a good time. But they're not watching it for philosophy or for the quality of the mm -hmm. performance or for any of the stuff that you and I are looking for in cinematography and lighting and glasswork. They're just looking to have a good time where they forget the trouble of the day. And I, I think that that is a universal quality that isn't universal to every person because I think that you mm -hmm. and I are exceptions to that rule. But we also find value in it. Definitely. Yeah. And even though I think that's maybe how it is phrased in the movie is that certain people need this kind of thing or that's all that certain people have it's just it would probably it, it's probably not that hard to just interpret that as at times we all need something like this we yes. all have certain and, times and that was the <laughs> yes. that was the cry of a civilization that had been or an american way of life that had been in the great depression for 13 years essentially at that time starting in 1928 this mm. film was it premiered in 1941 so the audience mm. there were a people that had suffered through the Dust Bowl, had suffered through the Great Depression. And I think that more than any other time, those people did need something like the claim here. I don't think that's true all the time, but I do think it is accurate to the time it is um, of, Yeah, we'll say. I don't know. Sometimes these are just relative to, you know, the movies you watch on either side of it. It was the third Sturgis. The bar was already set high. It was my first Sturgis. <laughs> the bar was set low. <laughs> Sometimes that happens. Like, I don't know. I, I can't say that I have, like, real complaints here. Um, yeah, you know, sometimes you just can't help but try and rank them a little bit. But it's yeah. a good movie, no doubt. Um, Do you have a favorite scene? Favorite shot? Favorite moment? 
probably the scene where Veronica Lake and and uh, our protagonist first meet in that like train car diner. I think it, it feels like a train car. I'm not sure if it actually is or not. Um, but just the uh, kind of pace of the exchange there. Um, her buying him the eggs and they're back and forth. I don't know. There was something about how that isn't particularly fast paced in the way I think of Screwball, but there is just a a perfect kind of tempo in their introduction to each other that, uh, I, I responded to. What about you? Once again, uno memento por favor. I ask these questions before I know the answers. See, um, it's because there are so many, it's a good problem to have. It is. I'm going to say when he's trying to convince her that the house that she's in is his house. Um, and then she like pushes him in the pool. That whole mm-hmm. arc there, that is, um, it's comedic timing and, and everything, but it's also letting her lead. And Veronica Lake to me was a really sharp performer that didn't really have anything to do in this film. I love this film. Mm -hmm. It's not a fault of the screenplay. It's just that the screenplay isn't about her. Mm -hmm. She is a secondary character. Um, And Sullivan, the titular character is the main character, the lady Eve, you know, Barbara Stanwyck was our main. That's Mm -hmm. just kind of how Preston goes. If he names a movie after character, they're the lead. (laughs) Um, But there's a lot of um, strength in her passive performance of just being this character. And I think that watching an actress play an actress, um, who's also like fed up with the bullshit of Hollywood mm-hmm. always is one of my favorite things. Yeah. I think this was the first movie I've seen with Veronica Lake in it, but I thought she was terrific. Loved her. Um, yeah, I don't think we've talked about it on the show. Have you seen LA confidential? I have seen LA confidential. I think it's Kim Basinger in that mm-hmm. film who Kim is, yeah, who is, um, kind of playing the role of uh Veronica Lake there, right? I think yeah, she dresses up and I was point. like, oh, she does a really good job of that. Yeah. Um so yeah, I I, I would be interested in watching more now, of I, Veronica Lake. I sure. might be wrong in this claim, but I do believe that it's either this film or The Lady Eve or both that the cinematographer is the cinematographer of um Sunset Boulevard. Oh, interesting. I was not aware. And I remember watching all of the pool scenes and going, ha ha, foreshadowing. He knows how to handle those. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. That is it for this episode, Michael. See you next week. Adios. Run! Go! Get to the chopper! We have to go. I'm coming with you. That was brilliant. You're the best and we love you! And that's another one in the can.